Fundamentally, first we have to get out of this like experiment for everything mindset. Like sometimes you don't need it because you just like why why are you experimenting with everything? You need to have clear goal on I am trying to do X. And if it, X doesn't work, then it doesn't matter if Y works because I am trying to do X. Like you said, the three-way marketplace complexity is it could win on one side but could could lose on the other two sides. So yeah. how do you go about tackling that? I think ultimately the customer is customer is key, and I think. Even zero to one projects, we execute zero to one projects all the time. My teams do. The first time you are doing the OKRs, you don't get it right. The second time, maybe okay. The third, fourth time, you are actually seeing what it, what are the things you are trying to move the needle to. Hey everyone, welcome to our podcast, Everything Product. In this podcast, we talk about product management concepts and latest technology insights. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Vishal, uh, who is a senior director of product management at Ship. This is a part two of this uh, episode. Uh, for, if you guys have not watched part one, please go ahead and watch using the above link. So let's get started. Uh, one of the questions which I had was, how do you incorporate uh, this experimentation um, to optimize all this within the product development process today? I think experimentation personally, I think. So there is a scientific, you know, uh, definition of experimentation what is an experiment you know how do you design it there's a methodology i mean you you mentioned uh shri that there are talks right so i've done some talks there are different ways of running an experiment what is good in what scenario what doesn't work in what scenario etc right like for marketplaces there is a certain way uh when you know you're in a complex three-sided scenario certain ways of experimentation work certain doesn't certain don't um so there is that the science part of you know, whether we are doing it, but I think to simplify experimentation is, uh, it's maybe, maybe it is sometimes sold as a very complicated or arcane skill, right? Like it's something complex or no, only people who have like a math background or a stats background have access to what is experimentation, you know, like things like that. But I think ultimately experimentation is just very simple bread and butter of what we do, what our, what our operations team do, what everybody does just to run a business. And, and, and here's the basic thing, the basic thing of what you do, what you're trying to do is when you, when you try something new, when you have a new idea, it's an upgrade to what you're doing. It's a completely new idea, which has never been tried before, whatever that may be, right. Or you're fixing a bug or whatever, even if you're fixing a bug, right. Ultimately what it comes down to is how confident are you that you can basically blast this to everybody, all of your audience, or do you, don't have that confidence hundred percent that you just want to blast it to all of your audience and you want to actually try on some of them and then see what their reaction is. And basically then try on a little more of them. Either you keep going or you basically say, no, we want to do something. That's the basic concept, right? We throw the fancy keyword of fancy word of experimentation, how you do it, so on and so forth. The basic idea is that what is your confidence that you can actually just like land this, you can do a big bang release. Or you actually, you are not fully confident, 100% there that what you have built is basically, you know, is, is what exactly what the customers want. And by the way, like when you have that confidence, you know exactly what your customers want. You have read their mind, right? Because, you know, you are sitting here, you have read their mind, right? So, you know, you exactly, you know what they want, um, you know. So one example I'll give you, simple example. Um, if you were to reduce the cost, right? Let's say, you know, some platform has delivery fees. I'm making, making this a very, very simple example, right? Let's say it's a 499 for delivery and forget about the 
orders, the the type of orders and all. Let's know the details. I think you can you can very easily assume if you reduce that delivery fees from four ninety nine to three ninety nine, your demand will increase. There's no need to experiment. There's yeah. no need to experiment. Like this is just obvious human behavioral psychology, behavioral you know, behavioral finance. Like this is how people behave. When you give things for cheaper, more people will want to buy. There's nothing to experiment here. Now the the question is, if you have weird combinations you're trying, right? Which is you know, oh, I want to give them a discount, but I want to charge them. For something else, I want to make some items in what they are doing more expensive. The others are che- are lesser. But guess what? I'm actually giving them an overall discount. Those things, do you have hundred percent confidence of what combination works? Then you have to expect because you are trying combinations, trying to figure out what items sh- in the in that out of that four ninety nine you're reducing one dollar. You want to take that dollar out somewhere. Maybe you increase the cost of some items. You decrease the cost of the others. So which items do you increase? Which items do you do you decrease for making that one dollar up? Like that's something you need to experiment with because you know what people are buying. What and that also you can potentially look at your historical patterns and you can kind of like make a guess. But you need to do that, right? Like to you know as it gets more and more nuanced, you actually need to experiment because you're truly in an unknown territory where you don't know for certain combinations how your market, how your audience will react, how your customers will react. But they, basically that's what experiment is like. You know, if if the experiment, if somebody said that, you know, I want to experiment, you know, our app is not loading, it's crashing right now. I want to run an experiment to fix that bug and see whether it loads for, you know, for so many people. I'm like, this is dumb, right? Like, you don't have to experiment. <laughs> yeah. Roll it out. Like, this is not an experiment. It's a bug. I mean, we know that the app is not loading. There's there's no like 10% of the audience or whatever. Test it in-house. It fixes it. Test it on, the, on all the devices that you can. You know it fixes it. There was some, you know, something that we... Uh, pushed forward and now we are rolling it back or fixing it roll it out there's nothing to experiment so yeah. that's i think fundamentally first we have to get out of this like experiment for everything mindset like sometimes you don't need it because you just like why why are you experimenting with everything but that mm. said i would say that 95% of the 90 95% of the situations are not where you are trying to do something so obvious right where you know it's clear as day that you don't need to experiment in that case then you start thinking about okay now there are some experimentation techniques we you know i've talked about in the past as well the classic experimentation technique is ab test right which is what you're doing is you are taking an ab test and that that experiment can happen on anything so in our case we talked about the three sites so you could split ab is basically a split split test you yep. know you're splitting the audience or splitting something splitting x between two sites right so you could split Either the customers, the incoming customers, like half of the customers see something, the other half doesn't. Let's say if you split 50-50, right? Or 10% of the customers will see something, 90% wouldn't. 90% is status quo. They see they see what's happening today. 10% see something new that you're trying, a new idea that you don't have confidence. You could do that. You could actually split on the uh, on the orders itself. The customers all see the same thing, but the orders are slightly different. Like the way, you know, one order is treated versus the other order. So if you if you split it on orders, then you're not really splitting it on people because one customer, if they place 10 orders, they might see for five, like if you're splitting 50-50, five of, five of the orders would be experimented, five of the orders mm-hmm. would So as a member, as a customer, you may not see that impact because, you know, because you're seeing an average across the experiment and non-experiment, but internally we have actually split on orders. We can measure impact on what, what happened to split or these orders versus that. Or, you know, I'm making this up. You could do that. You could actually split on the supply side, which is half of the gig workers get this, half of the gig. It depends on what you're trying to do. I'll give you an example. So, AB test is sort of the 
bread and butter cookie cutter experimentation technique. Uh, you know, people do that uh, all the time. Uh, I would say that again, I, I would come back to one, one thing I'll say very quickly, and then I'll, I'll come back to some more advanced techniques. I think the word experimentation sounds sexy, honestly, and it's fine that it, it does. But I think it's just common sense that before you roll out, like I said, if you don't have the confidence, before you roll out, you're going to try on a small percentage of your audience to see how they are reacting to something that you don't have very high confidence that this is how they're going to react. So, and 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 again, the, the reason I say experimentation sounds like a fancy word is you start with 10%. And then even if, even if let's say you have 90% confidence and then you look at the metrics, right? Like adoption or whatever that is. And you're like, okay, I, you know, 90%, I had 90% confidence that most people would love this feature and they are. Okay, now I tried it on 10% of the people because I didn't want to just like, just do it for 100% because I wasn't 100% confident. I was 90% confident. So I tried it on 10%. Now I'm going to go to 20%. Now I'm going to go to 50%. So it's it's a way of saying that I'm running an experiment, but ultimately it's a way of ramping up a rollout. It's just a ramp, right? Like, so there's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's common sense. Like the technique that you use is, is fine. There's, there are many techniques that you use, but ultimately the principle of why you're using experiment is you're using experiment as a way of trying something and either pulling back from it or you want to keep going and ultimately the experiment becomes your product. That becomes your product. Ultimately. So that's something that is important to keep in mind and not get caught up in, oh, A-B test versus, you know, there are so many others I can I can name. Uh, but, you know, it's like A-B test versus, uh, you know, we have uh, so many fancy, we have synthetic control. We have, uh, you know, uh, one thing is called uh, switchbacks. And I can talk about some of them for marketplace. The way you experiment is slightly different from what you do. You know, A-B test, simple A-B tests don't work. Uh, but you know, but that's sort of the idea is for people to understand experimentation is a means to an end and it's a common, it's a common sense thing. Like what technique you use is it's that, that matters, but ultimately why are you doing it? Because you are using an experiment to scale it up to everybody who's out there, to your audience. Essentially. I want to understand a little bit more there, right? So as product managers, like I'm sure like bunch of our viewers are product managers actually. So the thing that we start with is, Hey, this is my hypothesis that, uh, if we do this, then I'm going to look at this. And if we see that there is a 10% increase, 5% increase, then we consider that experiment as a successful right. experiment or a failure. And then finally, like implement whatever is the feature. Like you said, the three-way marketplace complexity is it could win on one side, but could, could lose on the other two sides. So yeah. how do you go about tackling that? So we did talk about prioritization, right? You have to be clear before you prioritize the experiment itself, I mean, the experiment is ultimately trying to drive a metric, right? It's trying to influence some numbers, some metric. Before you even, you even ask your team as a PM that this is something we want to run. This is something we want to prioritize. You need to understand uh, that's that's sort of the art of it. It's no, There's no science behind this, right? We talked about prioritization. It mm -hmm. may impact some other sides, but what are we gaining by giving up something? And is it worth it? That is a, mm -hmm. that is a business conversation. That's a soft conversation that no one metric or one number will actually answer for you. That's a business conversation, right? Which is you talk to your stakeholders. There's that's your influencing negotiating skills. If you strongly believe that this is a right step for the business, you should be able to convince other people, right? And if, and if your stakeholders are usually, you know, nobody runs an experiment in a vacuum, like a lone wolf, right? No, that doesn't happen. Usually you are operating mm -hmm. in context and you are trying to improve the business. So then you need to bring your other people along, take their opinion, understand if they, if they think this is something worth spending time and opportunity on, or, or are there other opportunities that you should be spending time on? So whether you prioritize that or not, 
And again, even even when we uh, design experiments, we actually have something called the way we do it, by the way, is, or at least we try to do it really hard, is we have something called an expected outcome in the company. So even before you run the experiment, you have clear metrics on what you're trying to measure. Everybody has that. But what we try to do is you try to forecast after you ran the experiment, what would be the change in that time? It's not like, you know, I'll just try it. And, you know, if it works, it works. If it does, because then what happens is then you might be like, oh, this metric isn't working, but that one is. So like, what was the goal of your experiment, right? You need to have clear goal on, I am trying to do X. And if X doesn't work, then it doesn't matter if Y works because I'm trying to do X. So you need mm. to be clear about why you're doing it and, and basically work backwards. And if it doesn't work for X, it doesn't matter if Y, y works because I, I'm not doing it for Y. Right? It doesn't matter that why may have worked become extremely, extremely, you know, uh, a simple example again, using pricing as, as an example, I have reduced all the, I've run an experiment where all my delivery fees is basically zero. Well, everybody's happy, but it doesn't work, right? Like, you know, it's not gonna, you know, all my fees to zero, everybody's happy, but well, the business isn't going to sustain. It doesn't matter. So you need to make sure that you have a clear goal in mind. You need to make sure that you try to forecast before even you run, you look at history, you look at something similar you may have done. You try to look at something maybe online. There's so much literature available today. Somebody else mm -hmm. may have done something similar. You try to do some napkin math in order to come up with a forecast. And by the way, uh, you know, this is us, by the way, this is us as PMs. We need to have this discipline. And I think in, in any experiment or any venture or any idea that you take, the skill of forecasting and being able to have a, have a target, a goal target, set a target, and whether measure whether or not you're close to the target is something that dif that differentiates, you know, the best of the best from people who are just sort of like doing the job. Because guess what, right? Like you as a business, when you are listed on Wall Street or you're listed, you know, or, you know, your finance team, for example, they are constantly forecasting what the number of users will be next year. They're constantly forecasting what will be the revenue next year. So why shouldn't you as a PM do it when you are actually trying to run something? You should have that discipline and that discipline and then I think, you know, you develop a deep understanding when you try to say, and by the way, like sometimes the forecast is just made up, right? Like, you know, I want to increase this metric by 2%. That's fine. You made it up. You know, even if you completely made it up, you didn't have any gut feeling or any justification, but at least when you ran it and you saw only a 0.5% statistic, statistic, only a 0.5% statistic improvement, you'd be like, what happened to the 1.5%? Like, why did I forecast that high? So that learning of being able to commit, being able to understand, and then basically driving really hard to understand what do I need to, to actually make that meet that commitment. That's super critical. So experimentation is a means to an end long story short, right? Uh, these techniques, this, these, these things that the discipline that you develop of how mm. do you experiment? What do you look for? What users, if I'm doing it here, if I'm doing it for one set of users, how can that impact another set of users in my marketplace? Can I actually forecast to my best ability? What after the experiment, what the world would look like? Those are the things that, that are super important to become a very data-driven, I would say. Yeah, totally agree to that point because forecasting is not easy. Like it's, it's very tough. And if you're not really driving the exact part, you might be a platform PM or you might be a PM who's driving few other things. It's extremely difficult to have that customer mindset and get to that number. But if you can do that, yeah, that'll be awesome. Right. But that's why I'm saying, right? People who understand that skill, when you understand that skill, now you are actually talking to your stakeholders because then you are telling your business stakeholders, well, you know, there are three things we can do. One of them will give us a 5% lift on this metric. The other will give us a 2%. The other will give us a 1%. And guess what? When you are, when, 
there are other PMs in the room who are like, I want to try X. Then the business stakeholders are like, but you, but this guy knows what he's doing or this girl hmm. knows what she is doing, right? They know they can, with, with some confidence, non-zero confidence, they can mm-hmm. tell me that they are at least trying, attempting to move the metric by 5%. And then what happens is then when prioritization discussions happen, they actually have an apples to apples comparison. Because if there is one metric, profitability metric, as an example, which is a top line company OKR, and it, everybody, you know, you're, you know, you, you, you are in all hands. Everybody, all of us are in all of our all hands. We know what is important to the company. If you decide to take that and basically, you know, re- reorient some part, some either some or all of your teams to actually reorient to that and, and try to solve and improve that metric, for example. Uh, mm. Nobody's going to say, as, as long as you can show, you can forecast and say, we think that we can improve the metric. The company wants to improve it by X percent. We can improve it by X by two, like 50% of X percent, right? Nobody's going to come and stand in your way, but you mm-hmm. need to be able to have that confidence. And once you promise, you need to deliver also. Otherwise, you're just making empty promises. And that is the worst way of losing trust, right? But you, you get the idea. As you, do, as you do it more and more, then you're speaking the language of business stakeholders. Then they are able to see, okay, this metric is important for the company. There are these three things this team is doing. There are these three experiments they want to try. They think that they can influence the metric by, by so much by doing this. The other teams, they don't know. So who should we actually fund? Who should we not? Who should we sponsor? Who should we not sponsor? Where we have a little, some, some non-zero confidence that, you know, they are going to move this metric versus the other team is like, we want to try X and let's see whether it moves the metric or not. We don't, we don't have a good handle on it. So it's very different. No, makes sense. Yeah, Thanks for explaining. Definitely. I think um, balancing uh, multiple things, the risks, the rewards from the experiment is important. And I think you brought up some great points around what are our primary goals, secondary goals, what are the success criteria that we will be measuring against I mean, the, the, the experiments, right? Otherwise, it's going to go forever and we cannot do experiments forever. Our leadership is not going to be happy. So I think those are some of the no, important factors that to, to consider. I think the, yeah, I think the key statement is, are you as a PM driven by outcome or output? You know, I saw, I saw this uh, visualization, this, this poster once, which stuck with me when I was an early PM, there was a poster of a rocking horse, right? You've, you've seen the rocking horse, right? Wooden horse mm-hmm. that rocks. Mm-hmm. And the statement was, there is a difference between movement and progress. And that stuck with me, right? Because you, you're making a lot of movement there, but you're not getting anywhere. So if you know what your goal is and you are able to chart a goal and you're able to chart an outcome and then actually, then you, you will learn as long as you have the, the drive and the, you know, the discipline and the hunger to actually chart an outcome versus, you know, like we'll, we'll figure out the outcome after we do something. That's a recipe for disaster. But if you can actually, it's not easy. Like, like funny, like you said, she, you said, you know, said it's not easy to, to work backwards from an outcome where you don't know. You don't know, like you're just like in a vacuum. You don't know what the outcome is. You don't know what the forecast is, but still, you know, using your, that's where the, uh, the art of a product manager, the judgment, the intuition of a product manager comes into picture. How do you make some reasonable goal? And it's okay. You know, like if you really put a stretch goal, that's the other thing about how do you, how should you stretch, uh, set OKRs and all that, which is a different story. But even if you set a stretch goal and you fail, you should be able to convincingly stand in front of the team and say that, yeah, we didn't achieve that. Uh, but you know, we, we did fail in doing that, for example, but we think that overall we didn't, we didn't meet the stretch goal, but that doesn't mean we, we failed completely, you know, because we did make progress. We learned what it will take for us to actually get to the stretch goal as we were doing this. And that is more important than anything else. Yeah. And, and some of the teams which I work with, right. That's what I say. Like the first time you're doing the OKRs, you 
don't get it right the second time maybe okay the third fourth time you're actually seeing what it what are the things you're trying to move the needle towards the goal and all of that stuff yeah, yeah. correct correct it took us i would say that you know uh, shift actually seriously started moving to okrs while i was at the company i've been at the company for just under 3 years at this point it took us about 9 plus months to to get the whole company oriented around 9 months 6 to 9 months the whole company oriented towards everybody is now there is a planning process there is a reporting process every quarter everybody is now trying to put some okrs and i would admit that not not by the way not all all things are completely measurable also right like let's let's make sure that you don't get you also don't get into a uh, into a system where you are basically trying to so it's always progress over perfection right you're not into a system where unless you can measure you are not going to make progress that's also not the right thing so it is a judgment call right like this is you know this is business there is no like one way of doing business right or, or or you know two ways of doing getting the business right so it's not like you don't launch anything because you couldn't measure as long as you have a strong intuition that this for example some tech debt some bug like some re architecture system re architecture you may or may not be able to say what is the impact on unit unit economics by by re architecturing a system doesn't mean you don't do right so that's what i'm trying to say is that there are projects sometimes you have to execute projects without uh having clear ties to the outcomes in fact i would say in my experience i would say and actually this is this is i think a good and i've never heard this before but i'm saying this from my experience so i would say that about 40% 30 to 40% of even in a very very okr driven company 30 to 40% of the work that happens or projects that happen milestones that are on the roadmap are truly tied to some meaningful okr the remaining 60% are projects and the reason i say that is you know the reason i say that is this let's say that you know from last quarter to this quarter the company has actually pivoted away and they have a new okr so they had a growth okr last quarter now you know growth looks fine they have a huge number of users now they are trying to figure out how to monetize the users so they have pivoted so in this quarter guess what some of the growth projects are still under undergoing the teams are not going to overnight wake up and say you know whatever i was doing i'm just going to stop doing that you know next day like 20, you know like when the clock strikes 12 i am immediately going to start working it doesn't work like that there is a transition period so some of the even naturally there are some projects which are on the road map you have to wind them up you have to you know you have to land them and then you kind of so it takes it takes some time for these things to happen but even otherwise i would say you know 40% are the ones where basically the most innovation the most pushing of the company the most measurement the most of that happens and don't get caught up in like i couldn't measure 100% for everything i did well the 40% you did will be so much more impactful and that's that's more than good enough to to push yourself push your teams to push your company forward so you know that's what i'm trying to say as well right many times i've also seen features which are like 0 to 1 it's like this is the feature needed it comes from ops customer success etc i can't really put an uh, kr to it but i'm just going to do it because it helps i know that it helps no i was just saying that uh, it's a very interesting question and i kind of touched upon it earlier i think ultimately the customer is customer is key and i think even zero to one projects we execute zero to one projects all the time my teams do the one okr is we don't have an okr that's fair because you know we don't know what we're doing it's the first time but our okr is to a to launch so there are zero to one you know like hit a deadline so that's an okr we commit we will get this done we have the discipline of planning going and talking to our engineering teams to estimate dev effort and all of that so number one is what we promise on that day we we actually land so that's that's progress i would say mm. that is also measurable progress like doing when you say something will be done 
and the teams actually gelling and working together and all of them, you know, that's progress because that's a cultural thing. And the second thing is we don't know, but there's always an adoption of care. So the way we, way I say it is after we launch this, we will baseline adoption to say that so many users are actually ultimately see the worst product or worst feature you can build is something that nobody uses ever. That's like the worst thing you ever build, right? Because you have wasted a bunch of time and effort and money in doing something that nobody cares about. So at least number one, we hit the deadline, what the deadline was, the planning and the discipline of that. And number two is out of that, we came, came out and we said that so many people we think, or again, like I said, it might, it might be difficult, but as, as much as you can try, you can look at other zero to one launches that happened in the past, maybe something similar. You can say that mm -hmm. within a week from now, a week from this, a month from this, we expect so many users to actually continue using our product, to, to continue to use our product after about a month or so. So at least have that. And then again, there's a goal. And then if you don't meet the goal, you again, you go back to the drawing button, like, what do I need to do? It's that discipline that is important. And if you do meet that goal or beat that goal, then it's like, maybe I was just under promising. Maybe the product is really much better than anything we have done before. But at least you have something to compare, right? So, you know, that that's sort of how you make progress. Yep. Vishal, actually, I have a, I have a, uh, I want to take a 360 degree turn here, right? Professional career, we all like do a lot of things, aim for a lot of things, uh, achieve things. And you as a person, what I've seen, uh, and when we met in the product tank event as well, right? You are very uh, outspoken, like you are in the events, you try to mentor people. You are also an advisor uh, on the advisory board for like multiple companies and stuff. So what I see this is this is growing our personal persona beyond the professional career that we're going with. So can you uh, give us like what motivates you in doing that? And what would you give as an advice to other people to do this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a good question. I think one thing that motivates me, and this is an honest answer. One thing that motivates me is uh, I, in this space, in the space of podcasts, you know, I'm doing this. I've done a bunch of different talks before. I actually believe that giving back is actually a way of gaining a lot of knowledge as well. So I have learned so much for free, honestly, from a lot of industry leaders in a lot of different podcasts, newsletters. I listen to them and I have grown so much, especially through COVID, right? Where everybody was confined in their homes and, you know, the uh, online channels, YouTube channels and all this, all that digital, it was a digital explosion, right? The number of, con the kind of content, amount of content that was being published. There's so much out there on investment, on product management, on business operations, on design, on this, on that. So I just find, I just find uh, it very gratifying that I'm just able to learn from all these experts for free, honestly, right? Because there's so much knowledge out there that it has helped me grow. So the way I think about this is it's my way of giving back, right? Which is, you know, uh, maybe I have some insights. I have listened to a lot of these ideas, but I have tried to use some of them into my own uh, in my own situation, in my own context, in my own company. And then what have I learned? Maybe those learnings are a little new. Like, for example, you know, one of the things that uh, we tried, I tried to describe the marketplace 101, you know, the unit economics, right? Supply demand. You, you guys may have seen that supply demand thing before, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, supply increases, demand increases with price, supply, you know, whatever. Supply increases with price, demand increases with price. But I mean, one of the things that I realized uh, is that for us, it is, there is inventory. And if you try to plot that, and I try to do this, like if you actually try to plot that, there is no real equilibrium in the marketplace. There is no one balance point. 
And then you kind of try to, then you kind of understand. And, you know, when you share that out with others, just one small example, right? And, you know, another one that I just shared was 40% of your projects will have OKRs. Don't beat yourself up. 40% are the ones that matter. Don't, don't, don't obsess over why don't I, why, why isn't everything that my teams are doing, everything is measured. Progress over perfection. 40% will get you very far, even if you get to 40%, right? So things like that, which I've learned through experience, I have not heard that, you know, in other places that is born out of my own uh, working experience through my own teams, et cetera. And I feel like we should share that, right? Because, you know, hopefully it is helping some other people grow just like other people help me grow. So that's, that's basically it. <laughs> I think our podcast also probably started uh, in a similar way, like where we felt like, okay, we are not only sharing, but also learning at the same time and keeping us yeah. updated with what's going on around the world. Otherwise, I feel like, okay, we're not updated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the funny part was even for our podcast, I, we are all product managers, right? We define OKRs. <laughs> this is our quarterly goal for the podcast. This is our key results. How are we doing for sure. the podcast and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good to measure progress. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I am hoping that you... So when you are setting OKRs, you have a forecast, right? Is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is the, that's what I'm trying to say, right? Agnostic of the problem space. Whatever the problem space may be, that discipline is what is important. Again, we use the word experiments. I would say that if I, you know, had a mom and pop store, right? You know, like, you know, some small, medium business, mom and pop store, a general store. And I was selling things off the off, off my store, off the aisle. Um, I would probably have some, I would have learned what an experiment is. I would have learned why do we experiment. I would try some experiments, physical experiments in my store. I would try to keep the store open during certain hours, close during certain hours. Like this is not different. It's just, how do you think about life? How do you think about, you know? So that's, I think that is something that I've learned a lot. Technology is just a manifestation of what, what human needs are ultimately. And that's what we're trying yeah. to solve that. Right? So. Definitely. <laughs> awesome. So uh, I, you know, <laughs> we spent a lot of time discussing a lot of different topics. So, you know, normally we do like a trivia at the end you know, set of questions, like, uh, let's maybe do that. And um, I'll hand it off to Srinath to wrap it, off, wrap it up. So uh, if I were to ask you, right, like, uh, what, what would, what would be your favorite book or the book which you're reading now? My favorite book? Uh, or you said favorite book or podcast? Is that what you... or, or, or a book that, that you're reading currently? Oh, sure. Okay. So I love reading, personally, I love reading nonfiction books. Uh, you know, I learn reading business books. I, again, I learn, I, I love learning. And I told you guys, reading is my vice. I, I try to read as regularly as I can. Uh, I just finished reading. This is a very old book, but I really loved it. It's called High Output Management by Andy Grove. He was the CEO of Intel. Uh, it is, I heard about the book first time when I was listening to the CEO of Spotify, Tobi Lutke, Tobias Lutke. Uh, and he was talking about how he was influenced through Andy Grove. Andy Grove was, just to give you guys a background very quickly, he was an Hungarian immigrant uh, who came to the US. He founded Intel, started Intel, made Intel what it is, you know, a common household name, all the Pentium processors, Pentium chips, et cetera. He was the CEO at the time when, when all of that was happening. He was the one who actually introduced uh, OKRs at Intel. So yep. they talk about... Uh, they talk about something called MBOs, which is management by objectives. They don't call it OKRs, right? Uh, you know, but anyway, this was in the 80s and 90s, I feel like, uh, around that time. 
We talk about MBOs. So it's like the origin of how OKRs are. How did they plan? They talk about how do you structure, how do you level OKRs? For example, how does the OKR hierarchy work? What should your OKRs be as a manager? What should your OKRs be? What should your reports OKRs be? How do they kind of level up? Is there a hierarchy, etc.? So it's a it's a great book. It's old. It's pretty. It's a very classic. I love that. Now I'm actually reading uh, something called Scaling People. Scaling People is by the ex Chief Operating Officer of Stripe. Her name is Claire Hughes Johnson. She was actually not very long ago on Lenny's podcast. Uh, she was talking about the book as well. She was at Google for a while, and then she was the Chief Operating Officer of Stripe. So you know she she also talks about routines, processes. I love process, by the way. Uh, you know, sidebar. Uh, I hate meetings. This is a very controversial statement. I hate meetings, but I love process because process doesn't process doesn't equal to meetings. Right? Process means you are you have a common understanding of how how to get things done, which doesn't mean you have to meet all the time, right? But uh, but you know, so that discipline and the and the protocol of like who does what, accountability is clear. You know that I love that. So she talks a bunch about that as well. How to scale people? Scaling people is the is the foundation of scaling everything else. Like if you scale people. Processes can scale, companies can scale. People first, basically, is, is sort of the gist of the book. Uh, in terms of my personal favorites, uh, I would say that my all-time favorite is Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I love that book. It's very creative. It's a very old book, obviously. Uh, everybody has read it, but I love how every every time I read it, I'm just like, it is so creative and so full of imagination that you know somebody Lewis Carroll like wrote it so many years ago. It's just like I just love that book because of the. It's it's like truly like a no holds bar story. Like anything happens in that story, right? So I love that. There are obviously movies being made, so obviously the book is important and relevant even now, right? Movies are being made even now on that. So I love that. There is another one, last one, which is the Geek in Me, uh, and these are books that I read a long time ago. So the other nonfiction book is sort of fiction nonfiction. So the other book is it's called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. So this is it's a weird title, but Richard Feynman was a physicist. Uh, he was a Nobel Prize winner at Caltech, and so they describe his life, uh, how he was as a. It's, it's it's written as an autobiography. It was a narrate narrate narration, but it's written in first person. But I know that you know the 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 thing is that it was it's written not by Richard Feynman. It's written by somebody else, but it's written in first person. Uh, so it's a biography, narrate narrated biography essentially. Uh, he talks about how he was as a kid. He used to love thinking. It's it's a very he was apparently a very funny character. Uh, as a as a person, and he was very he used to he used to love like breaking locks and get breaking to other people's homes, for example, you know, so things like that. He talks about that. He talks about like gambling, because everything is ultimately maths and physics, right? Like, so he was a obviously a big abstract thinker because he got a Nobel Prize. There are things like that. Uh, so it's very inspirational, uh, you know, to to read read about these books. I generally like reading about people. I think the one that uh, I am reading. Right now, nonfiction that I'm reading, right? Nonfiction about about people, not business. Is I'm reading uh, President Obama's biography, The Audacity of Hope. So that's also that's also sort of I'm in the middle of it, so I don't know, don't have an opinion. Audacity of Hope. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. It's, it's always good to you know share books and <laughs> see how that inspired you. So uh, to the, to my uh, next question, like if what is your favorite uh, podcast? Uh, go to podcast sure there are a few uh, of course i love yours <laughs> i have to say that <laughs> thank you thanks sir yours is great and i've seen the episodes obviously right i've seen i've seen you know past guests so i love that i love how the conversations are so candid it's very easy it's very easy to kind of bring out nuances with you guys especially the 
panel format that you guys have where somebody may go deep and somebody may you know bring bring us bring you back to the surface for example so i love that uh versus with a single interviewer it can basically become you know set agenda sometimes right versus you guys it's a little more it feels like it's a little more free balling a little bit more which is great uh i love lenny's i think you know it speaks for itself because it's one of the you know one of the top 3 podcasts on apple and spotify right now he literally built it you know in the last 2 or 3 years and uh, he has all the product leaders and claire hughes johnson was actually on his podcast uh, recently so i love you know learning i have learned a lot from that podcast from all these business leaders i learned i used to i used to love how to solve it by guy raz uh, this was this was before covid he is he used to do a podcast for new york times i believe and he used to go and talk that's where i uh, heard about the book uh high output management because he interviewed tobias lutke so he used to interview how i built it i'm sorry it's not how i solved it how i built it so that's he goes to original founders original so he had for example collison brothers from stripe so he talked to them he had you know shopify ceo so he goes to he used to go to and he's a new york journalist i believe so he used to run a podcast there so i love that uh and i think the last one that i like is it's 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 not very frequent unfortunately uh but it is but the episodes that have been released i have found them pretty deep and insightful there is one by a vp from facebook his name is nikhil singhal and his podcast is called the skip he is not releasing a lot of it because he's busy i guess uh, the skip yeah but uh and i think the theme of the podcast is if you were to move to your skip level what would you need to do how would you need to think in order to get to a skip level job not your manager's job but a skip level job i think that's the idea so i have learned a lot from that as well unfortunately he doesn't release a lot but i'm thankful for whatever he does release uh, i don't know him personally but i've learned from that podcast thanks for those humbling words about the podcast and <laughs> yeah i know we are also big fans of lenny's podcast and also the reason why we started the podcast is right like product management is it's is is more of an art than science and there's like a lot of hidden gems where people collect through experience and the job job they do so uh, especially all of the stories you shared right could benefit a lot of lot of other product managers which you can't find in any book or any framework right awesome so i'll i'll ra- wrap it up with the last question right if you were to mention what is your favorite movie bollywood or hollywood whichever it is <laughs> sure i saw a bollywood movie after a long time when i was i am right now in india as as you guys know um and uh, i saw one right before i left for india uh and i actually i hadn't seen a bollywood movie in a long time but i i really i mean this is this is you know this is recency bias right this is also as pms we think about recency bias so this is this is an example of that uh i saw it and then i liked it so much i saw it again the next day it is a 3 hour long movie so that's saying a lot you know i don't i don't really watch bollywood movies it's called rocky aur rani ki prem kahani it's a hindi movie no. uh it's about you know uh these two guys who fall in love yeah yeah two different families they fall in love you know it's a very cliche hindi movie uh but i really enjoyed it uh, i think one of my all time favorites english movie again this is the geek in me one of my all time favorites is the beautiful mind a beautiful mind right from uh, you know uh, russell crow this is about john nash the economist you know game theory oh. and things like that so that's also one of my favorites so. yeah i liked rocky and rani <laughs> as well <laughs> it's a it's a total masala movie right hindi masala yep. movie and it's like a lot of entertainment songs colors so i it was but just it, like a break from uh, reality it was like an escapism movie so i really liked it i love the rocky randhawa's character is like always <laughs> in there always energetic yeah 
He's always, yeah, he's always like, he's always plugged in, you know. He's always plugged in. <laughs> that yeah. feels like a true Ranveer Singh's uh, real-life character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. I really I'm not. Know. I'm not sure if you guys watched a recent uh, the Coffee with Karan, uh, where yeah. uh, him and Deepika were there, and he was talking about a lot of his <laughs> the energy levels and all that stuff. So <laughs> I don't um, usually follow like a lot of Hindi anything, honestly. Like I, I think I saw a Bollywood movie after probably two years, but it was really good, and I was like, yeah, I had to see it again the next day. I usually don't like. I'm in India, and I'm not really watching TV at all. But yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's been amazing. Uh, the session, listening to your insights into experimentation, three-way marketplace, which are pretty challenging. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you viewers out there will be benefited uh, from the, all the strategies, tips that uh, you gave. Maybe before we end uh, our podcast, uh, any last piece of advice that you would give for the aspiring product managers out there? Yeah, I would say the the only recent piece of advice I would say now is is actually listen to all these podcasts. It's it's an incredible wealth of information, right? Uh, some of the ones that I mentioned, and you know, learn for yourself. There is no real school of product management. There's no one degree. There is well, there is officially there are degrees now. Carnegie Mellon has one, I think. There are a couple, but my point is that the real, uh, you know, what what is what does it take to do the job? what there are so many moving pieces it takes a while to get it right to find your find your feet and find your groove and the self confidence that you are doing it right i have lived in imposter syndrome for a long time i lived in it today mm-hmm. when i hire you know new pm uh, new new team members or hire new people my first statement to them is you forget the imposter syndrome out the door you are here because you 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 belong right so mm-hmm. maybe you don't feel it maybe you have things to prove that's fair you know and we understand it's a good thing to not think take things for granted so it's good that you 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 feel that way but as far as we are concerned if we feel if i feel for example that you know i need to coach you somewhere i will if i don't and i don't and i'm absent that doesn't mean that i'm ignoring you it means that i just i have trust in you so you just go do your thing right so you know like just, that is the only piece of advice i would give is listen to other people learn from them uh try to understand this is not this is definitely not a one size fits all it's a complicated job it's difficult to difficult to even understand what is a good product manager but it takes a few years of 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 persistence you know of uh, of being there even if things are tough even if things are uh, unclear it takes a few years of being there in order to understand like what does it take to actually get to the next level definitely i think i mean like product management is not like a oh, go and learn a C language or a C plus plus language and do it. Right. It's like more art and science involved, like a lot of problem solving and all that stuff, right? And I think that product management continues to evolve, and the way we keep updated is uh, listening to podcasts or reading books and all that stuff. Exactly. That's an that's an awesome advice. Uh, so maybe uh, with uh, that being said, uh, we will um, end this podcast. Uh, I know we spent close to one and a half hour on this. Uh, we would uh, highly thank you uh, for your time in your busy schedule. I'm sure in India, it's more busy and stressful. Uh, so uh, we highly appreciate you taking time and uh, looking forward for more future engagements. Yeah, this was a very, very engaging conversation is all I want to say. I said it before. I think this was very natural. I think the conversation, it was like, you know, like a little river. It flowed wherever it flowed. And it, you know, you guys were—you uh, guys just allowed me to ramble on a, a, a few times. I think I hope that the insights were helpful. 
Uh, yeah. You know, I hope they were not uh, disconnected from what the questions were, and I hope that you know they were on point. But it was very natural. It felt very easy. So definitely keep the format up. I appreciate you guys having me. Uh, last thing I'll say: if your audience wants to connect with me, I I would love to. As as you mentioned, uh, Sri said and funny. Uh, I would I love to mentor. I love to give back to the community. If anybody wants to connect with me, my LinkedIn is LinkedIn dot com slash in slash v e e. It's just v w e three letters. So find me on LinkedIn. Add me. Uh, if there's anything else that I can do to be helpful, I'd definitely love to uh, love to. Give back. So, yeah. In the description and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, it was definitely. great being here. Thank you so and much for your definitely. Thanks for the kind note there. And yeah, for all the viewers out there, please uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and watch this video. Thank you. Yeah.